0: Enjoy!
2: And so, Marty, I now say farewell
3: and wish you Godspeed. You've been a good, kind, and loyal friend to me, and you made a real difference in my life. I will always treasure our relationship and think on you with fond memories, warm feelings, and a special place in my heart. Your friend in time, Doc M.L. Brown, September 1st, 1885.
4: I never knew I could ride anything no, so much. No, Doc. It's beautiful. Welcome to Pearls of Fandom. Alright, welcome to Pearls of Fandom, everyone, and also to the geeky retro nerd show. My name's Greg and joining me as always is Daniel. Hey guys. And Dave.
1: G'day. And yeah, the Geeky Retro Nerd Show audience must be wondering uh, where the hell's Adam and who the hell are these guys? Well, don't worry, we've got Adam uh, not far away. Uh, Everybody loves a good crossover and that's exactly what's happening
2: on this episode of Pearls of Fandom and Geeky Retro Nerds. So for the audience's sake, Dave... Do you want to just give us a bit of a background as to how this has all come about and why we're doing the crossover?
1: Yeah, well, Adam, the host of the Geeky Retro Nerd Show, has contributed to our show in the past. And we're a big fan of his work from over there in Scotland. Uh, He's heard some of our gear from here in Australia. And we've decided to um, pull our content together and do a special episode of uh, what is going to be Back to the Future 3. So, Adam's done a couple of uh, podcast episodes before on Back to the Future, as we have. We've done one and two, and we're up to number three. So, I thought this would be a really good opportunity for us to get in touch with Adam and uh, tell him what we thought of his show and, and ask him if uh, he'd like to contribute to a um, collaboration like this. And uh, he agreed to it. We've uh, done a little bit of work on it, and uh, here we are. A bit of timing. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, Adam.
3: Well, first of all, thank you very much for asking me to do this uh, collaboration. I'm very excited. I love talking about Back to the Future. Uh, So when you asked us to um, be involved, it was an absolute no-brainer to say yes. Thank you.
1: Yeah, if you're a fan of uh, Pearls of Fandom and and like what we do, I highly recommend you check out the Geeky Retro Nerd Show on uh, iTunes or uh, any other place that you check out your podcasts. And for uh, you guys that have been listening to Adam for this time, uh, like we said, we're Greg, Dave and Dan um, from Pearls of Fandom and we're doing also episodes on movies. Uh, We've done the Back to the Futures, a few TV shows, that sort of thing. Um, Lots of uh, Star Wars content. This is the third Back to the Future one that we've done. And there are some other ones like Indiana Jones and some very other popular movies that people that you're listening to this kind of thing, I'm sure you'll enjoy as well. You can uh, subscribe to us on iTunes or Podbean or however you're listening to this at the moment. Uh, like I said, today, uh, yeah, Back to the Future 3 is uh, what we're going to be riffing about. Adam.
3: The first thing I wanted to talk about actually, um, or what I wanted to get a feel of, is where you guys rank. Um Back the Future Part 3 in your order of preference in the in the trilogy. Yeah. Because it, it's it's fashionable, isn't it, to rank yeah. trilogies or a series of films in an order of your preference, especially with things like Star Wars. I'm sick of looking on Twitter and yeah. seeing people ranking Star Wars movies. I try to rank my Star Wars movies, but it changes day to day. But I think it's a bit more straightforward with Back the Future. So I'd be interested to know where you rank part three in your preferences as part of this trilogy
1: you know when you compare it to the other two how, how much of a run does it get uh you know on your vcr player over the years and i'd probably have to say it's second or third maybe i find that i find
4: that if i watch two i tend to watch three yeah but one doesn't really get much of a go anymore they incorporate a lot of part one into part two so it feels like you're watching part one while you're watching two Right. Yeah, I, I find when I watch two, I I, I need to watch three just because of that ending. It well, just it doesn't it, end. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like basically one big movie with
2: like to be continued. In that's it. right. So versus one is contained in itself. Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and in a way, it's kind of like comparing the three movies. Is kind of like saying here's a six hour movie. Mm. Which third of it did you, mm. you know, like or dislike the most? And I think that's what it's what it's like ranking the Back to the Future movies because it is one brilliant long, complicated, brilliant story, and this one's just sort of the conclusion to it, and it does have some real conclusiony sort of uh, scenes in it, you know, that that tie things up. Yep, they they made sure of that because they didn't want to do a part four, so they made sure they tied up all loose
4: ends, except they left a big one dangling at the end with, you know. Doc having
2: created another time machine. I was going to get to that, but let me answer the question that you first asked, because that is a big, big yeah. elephant in the room. But um, most most finales to films, you look forward to the finale, whereas this one's disappointing, and it's not disappointing because they made it bad; it's because it's ending. Yeah. Yes, do you know what I mean? So yeah. you, and I'll rephrase what that means. If you watch the end of Jedi, you go, "Yeah, the rebels have won. And, you know, the Empire's dead. Vader's whatever." Yep. There's all these cool stuff you can pull away from. This one, they just blew up the thing that I, I love. Got, the Lorian's gone. Yeah. Mm. And it's all went winding down. Yeah. And it's kind of like, oh. Marty's going back to a normal life Yeah, now. it's all yeah. kind of like plateaued out. And that's yeah. the mood that I always used to get out of 3 versus the excitement and the energy that you get out of 1 and 2. They don't really make modern westerns anymore, do they? Well,
4: I don't know if you've ever laid eyes on un- Unforgiven. I can't sit there and watch those those old movies.
2: Watch the Unforgiven. I'll, I'll, I'll,
4: give, those, yeah, I'll give the new ones a go, like Unforgiven and Quicken the
2: Dead. <laughs> that one's terrible. Forget that one. Whoa, West. <laughs> That's not a Western either. <laughs> See any outlaw trying to draw. <laughs> uh no on many fronts that that is the answer to that. But Whoa West had a rap song in it. <laughs> yes. Like all good Westerns should. Like <laughs> I love that no. your your whole um, background on Western films is Wild Wild Western, this, but um, no. But with, with Adam, this... you got to teach Greg a few things about <laughs>
4: Westerns because he's a bit off track. Give me some good Westerns to watch that'll get me into the genre. I'm, 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 I'll be I'll be interested and in, in keen to actually watch them if they're going to get me into the genre.
1: But number two is my favorite. It's still the one that I watch the most, so I have to say it's my favorite. You know, number two as a kid growing up was a cool movie because it had all that future stuff in it whereas 3 went the other way it was you know was real you know it's frustrating at times to watch 3 because of the crap technology from 130 years ago you know it's they've got no petrol they've got no clean water they've got no I love that s- flat surfaces to get a car up to 88 miles an hour but I think it's frustrating to watch because of you know the the crap technology in it you know which is Direct polar opposite of of uh, episode two, where the technology just has everything you want, you know, weather service and power laces and you know all of this. This is just, uh, uh you know, and it has its the frustrations of the other movies as well, you know, where they just they're, they're on a mission but bloody Biff keeps intervening somehow, and you know those sort of tensions that cutting you, everything you, down to the wire. That's right. Yeah. Which he he even says this. Why Marty says yeah. why do we always. You know, leave these things till the last minute or he says something. Why cut them so close? Cut yeah. these things so close. Yeah. yeah.
3: Personally, for me, I think my order of preference is the order in which the movies were released. Part one, then part two, then part three. Occasionally, I might change part one and part two around depending on what day of the week it is, depending on my mood. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I suppose part three always remains uh, my least favourite out of the trilogy. Now, don't get us wrong. The, the part three is an excellent film. It's absolutely brilliant and I do enjoy it. I love it. But when I think back, and now I always do this, I think back to when I was a kid and how I enjoyed these movies. And obviously this film came out in 1990. Uh, at that time I was 10 years old. And uh, prior to that, I was obsessed with one and two and they were played a lot in my house too. of so late eighties into the early nineties, they were played a lot.
1: Yeah.
3: Back to the Future 3 wasn't played all that much in my house. And when you asked us to be part of this uh, podcast, I was, I was thinking to myself, so why was that Adam? Why didn't you watch Back to the Future Part 3 as much as you did the other two? Um. Now, Was it because it wasn't as interesting to me as the other two? Was it because it wasn't as well made as the other two? Uh, And and I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's an excellent made, uh, a brilliant, um, brilliantly made film. It's absolutely fantastic, Uh, and it is interesting uh, because it's a western. For crying out loud, who doesn't love a western? And I suppose the short answer is I, I. I don't know. I don't know why I didn't watch it as many times. Clearly, it wasn't as enjoyable to me as the the first one and the second one. I think it may have a little bit to do with the kind of love story between Doc and Clara um, because, you know, 10-year-old boy, not that interested in love stories. And And I think you could argue that the first film was a love story you know about trying to get um, his mom and dad back together, but I think that was slightly different. Um, but you know, brilliant film. It's it's my least favorite of the trilogy, but it, but it's a fantastic movie. I love it, and it and Robert Zemeckis says actually that this this is the film he wanted to make because it's a western. When I was a kid growing up, my dad used to watch a film a lot, and and I think it was his favorite film called um, The Searchers with John Wayne. So, you know, back then, you didn't have more than one television in your house. I wasn't like Marty McFly. We didn't have two televisions. We weren't rich. Um, Not at this time, anyway. Um, And my dad used to watch The Searchers a lot. So I I would see this film, and, and I would grow to love that film. I absolutely love it. It was on the television the other day, actually, and I was watching it. And I absolutely love it. So... When Back to the Future 3 was a Western, it was like, oh, yes, brilliant. And which kid didn't like cowboys? Which kid didn't like horses and guns and things like that? You know, it was, it was cool at the time. It was really cool. Yeah. Um, cowboy movies and all that kind of stuff.
2: Well, I'm the same as Adam. I just, I'll rank these in order that they came out. Do you reckon the first one's the best? I've always thought the first one's better. Yeah. Okay. Because and the only I think I said this in the Back to the Future Two podcast. The only reason two is any good is because of how good one is. Mm. Otherwise, there's nothing of two. Yeah. Most yeah. of the juice of two is one. Yes. <laughs> well, the thing is, you kind of do get a bit of um, you know, what we wouldn't have seen had there not been a part three because he does get more or less knocked out, and Marty drives him back home and picks him up brings him inside his house and lies him out on the couch. Uses the hoverboard as a footrest. Yeah, and Doc wakes up um, and for some reason he doesn't notice the the kid sitting in the lounge room. There. Doc Doc's an idiot at the start of this movie. Yeah, he, he doesn't <laughs> notice him and he's talking to himself, he's recording, looking in the mirror, talking about how the experiment went. Yeah. Gets to the point where he realises why well, I don't remember anymore. And, and, he that's tries, what, and he gives it some sort of scientific
4: explanation about the Something displ- something displacement, yeah, causes which, a temp- temporal blockout or something like that. Some weird, he can't remember. Yeah, which is really yeah, and, and, to...
2: and to Marty, and which he gets freaked out again. Which is a really cool part of the film. I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but as um, Marty's delivering the news yet again that he's back again and why he's back, Doc's sort of stepping back, and he he lands on an organ. Yeah. And you get this. Bah, bah, bah. Yeah. yeah. And it, I looked at it and I thought, that's just like the old black and white movies where, you know, there'd be this big moment and they couldn't do anything because it was silent. Yeah. So I should say silent black and white movies. So their way to, to emphasize drama was with these organs. Right. And if you listen, go back and watch that scene again, it looks like they've taken that and just put it into this film. Yeah. Because the whole time he's delivering this, what seems to be bad news, you're just getting this massive organ. Yeah. And then when he finishes his, his diatribe, he stops. And the organ cuts off.
1: It, the, it, it's Doc's, really clever. Doc's physical comedy at the start of this movie is just through the roof. It is so funny. It's Kramer-esque. It's yeah. a bit weird, though, that Doc
4: would treat Marty like that, given what happened in part one. As in, he obviously went through the basically the same thing with Marty in part yeah. one, and now he's doing it again. Like, why wouldn't he believe it? Yeah. Like, it's a time machine, so he obviously could come back if he wanted to. That's well, right. Well,
2: he'd be a little bit disoriented, because he ju- just sent the kid off. Yeah, but and you no, wouldn't... Not, not not even a few minutes, there he is again. You'd be... You'd, you'd I know, but out. he wouldn't
4: be treating him like a complete stranger, which is basically what he is. Calling him future boy and all and whatnot again. Yeah, I guess. You know, he should... True. He should have, be a little bit more understanding of or, or anything can happen now. A little too... That sometimes. doesn't take away from it. It's still, still a f- uh, funny scene.
1: The other thing I love about the start of this movie and it was, you know, one of my favourite parts of part two is the the reading of the letter. And at, at the end of part two, when the guy from the post office delivers the, the letter to Marty in the rain, after he's seen the DeLorean struck by lightning, Marty sort of skims the letter and just reads the main parts yep. to discover Doc's back in 1885. But in this one, he reads the whole thing. And, um, you know, it like I said, it fleshes out the impact of that letter scene in in part two, and you, and obviously the exposition of uh, the detail about what the hell and how the hell Doc got back to eighteen eighty five, and his explicit instructions on on what to do and what not to do, um, you, you know, in, in particular in in finding the DeLorean in the mine. Which I think I said in our Back to the Future Two
4: episode that at that point in the movie there are three DeLoreans in 1955. Prior to the other one going back, you mean? Well, there's the one like there's the one at the clock tower. There's the one that's that's flying, and then there's the one in the cave. Basically, so they're all there at that point in theory.
1: Yep. Yes, they are. Yes, you have to think about that. Yeah. The ca- uh, how the DeLorean remained hidden in the cave for 70 years is, is an amazing bit
4: well, of writing. It's a mine, isn't it? It's a mine shaft. Yeah. yeah.
2: Do you love the detail of them having the ties just sort of disintegrate? Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it's all
1: this foreshadowing of why, you know, they're going to get into the predicaments they are going to get to later on
2: in the movie. So Copernicus um, sniffs out and finds a grave and Marty sees him sniffing around this grave wondering what, what he's doing to discover that it's it's Doc. Or 1885, Doc?
1: Yeah, because just prior to this, Doc says, no, I don't, I don't want to know anything. Because he's thinking, you know, if, I'm, if I have gone back to 1885, I'd be in the history books. Maybe I should go look up what I achieved and, you know, what happened to me. And then he sort of decides, no, I'm not going to do that. And it's at that point when Copernicus discovers the grave, alerting both of them to the fact that, you know, Doc gets murdered. Shot in the back over a matter of $80. $80. <laughs> and... Uh, and away you go. Like, there's, there's the reason now why not only is Marty going to disobey the instruction from 1885 Doc to not go back and, and, and pull him out, but Doc's on site as well. Like, he wants to go and make sure that he doesn't get murdered. Uh, I love that scene in the drive-in theatre where, um, you know, they back the car right up to the back of it and Marty accelerates off towards the picture of the Indians. With the white wall tyres yes from from 1955 right and um and it's the first use of the line where you know marty's going you know if i accelerate towards that picture of indians i'm going to crash into it and, and the doc says you're not thinking fourth dimensionally yeah i love that phrase i, I love that concept of of thinking fourth dimensionally. Fourth dimension that's right and um ironically you know he 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 makes the transition through to 1885, and what does he see coming the other way? (laughs) Indians. (laughs) That's great. I love the timing of the shot, and I don't know what went into the creation of it. Maybe this is something that Adam can find out for us. But, uh, you know, when they're trying to figure out how the hell they're trying to get, they're going to push the DeLorean, you know, to meet the 88 miles an hour that it needs to without gasoline. And they're thinking about it and, and, you know, the shot pans around just as the whistle of the train pulls into town, As the, the whistle of the train as the train pulls into town
2: in the background. Like a light globe goes off in their heads. It's such a well-timed, beautiful shot. I love it. Yeah. You just see the steam sort of travelling over the top of the trees for the um, train to reveal. It's really cool. Adam.
1: So
3: one of the things you may notice about Back to the Future Part 3 um I think I think it feels different to the other two movies and I think one of those reasons is because it's the only one of the trilogy that isn't shot at the Universal Studios back lot it just wasn't practical to shoot it there because of the the scale and the scope of what they were looking for and from this western town it wasn't possible to shoot at Universal so what they did was they they predominantly shot it um, in a place called Sonora in California and they built the whole thing from the ground up from scratch which is quite amazing uh, when, when you see it on film and like I say the size and scale of it is pretty vast so to to build it from the ground up I imagine was um, quite the task so because Sonora um, this place in California where they shot back the future three It's it's actually 350 miles away from Universal. So what they did was they expanded the shooting week to six days.
1: While we're in that section of the movie too, I put it out on uh, Facebook during the week and I'll probably take this opportunity to say hi to the people on the forums at Back to the Future fans and the Back to the Future Trilogy fan club pages who sent us some of their favourite moments and uh, scenes during the week. One of the contributors from our own Facebook page, Glenn, says uh, his favourite part was when when Mad Dog is actually shooting at uh, Clint Eastwood or Marty's feet, and he tells him to dance, uh, oh, yeah, in the and he, he yeah. starts doing the moonwalk. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's funny, but I think the funniest part to that scene is when Marty keeps moonwalking.
2: Yeah, well after he's done shooting. Unnecessarily, yeah. Well after the gunfire has ceased. <laughs> he's got a groove on. <laughs> Yeah. Does he add a shaman
1: in there or something? Yeah, I think life? he does.
4: <laughs> yeah, I think he does. Like right at the end when he steps on the floorboard
2: to hit the, the yeah, because he does the spin, does not he? What do you call it? The the spittoon. Spittoon.
4: Spitt- yeah, the spittoon
1: onto the um onto onto, onto Mad Dog. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's absolutely the again the comedy there is just fantastic. You know, he just he just keeps going.
3: Like yourselves, I've already done a podcast on uh, about the Future. Yeah. And when I did that, I used a fantastic. Book called Back to the Future: The Ultimate Visual History. Have you guys got this book?
1: No, but I've, I've heard you talk about it on your previous episodes. It, it's a brilliant book.
3: It's by a guy called Michael Clasterin. Um So when they did this scene, when they strung him up with the rope, uh, Michael J. Fox was standing on a ro- uh, on a, a bench or a, a chair and leaning into it so that it appeared that the rope was taught but zemeckis wanted wanted something that looked a bit more realistic so in i'm going to read this from the book yeah um bob asked me if i could make the swinging motion more natural and i said this is michael j fox and i said not unless my feet are dangling but if i put my hands here on both sides of the rope i can do it and you can get that dangling effect So Michael J. Fox was put into a harness by stunt coordinator Walter Scott and he was suspended by his chest. Michael J. Fox says, I remember saying to Bob, now you're going to see some acting. Watch this. On action, Fox inserted his hands on both sides of the rope and his knuckles pressed against the artery in his neck, cutting off the blood. Michael J. Fox says, I knocked myself out. (laughs) Um... The stunt coordinator, Scott, saw what was happening and brought him down immediately. Michael J. Fox says, Bob thought I was just doing a really good job and I was unconscious for 10 seconds at the end of this rope. So bloody hell, Michael, there's, there's commitment to your role, but uh, look after yourself, mate.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I've, I've watched that scene a few times and looked at Michael J. Fox's face and it doesn't look like acting. His face looks really looks blue right yeah and and sort of i don't know if the right word to use is ugly but it's just he you look at his face it looks it looks terrible it looks like he's really ill and now you know why now i know why yeah it's interesting it's a brilliant book
3: it's absolutely fantastic there's loads of stuff in it loads of stuff that i didn't know um and i wish on a podcast we, we could show photos because some of the photos in here are spectacular so for instance i'm looking at this book right now and there is a photograph of a guy on some sort of quad bike with a camera filming a scene from Back to the Future Part 3, and it's a scene where uh, Marty's running through the uh, town, and behind the cameraman is a guy sitting on the quad with a T-shirt on that says Indy 3, <laughs> Indiana Jones 3. So anything like that, I love. absolutely love it. It's a fantastic book.
4: No, I haven't heard of that book. I didn't know it existed, but I might uh, check it out. Yeah, if they do hover conversions in 2015, right, in this Back to the Future universe, you take a freaking steam train to to, to 2015 and say, hover, convert it. And then how I'm going to put it back on the rails.
2: <laughs> yeah, how did they get it there? <laughs> I'm not going to,
4: yeah, so... Um, Shouldn't have asked this question.
2: But it's... Look, yeah, it's I, just I supposed to be, wondered, just hang on, be a, how did
4: he do that? It's just supposed to be a ridiculous ending. And I think it... it well, the,
2: like, the other reason why I asked that why he's done that as well it's going to be gone all this effort to really make sure. And the directors and all the effort they went to say, we're getting rid of the DeLorean. Yeah. So we're no, no number four. Yeah. And then in comes this hover converted steam train. Ah, oh, but it led to the animated series. <laughs> oh, so that was their idea, was it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But that's fine, Dan. They didn't did make an animated It it a little bit. Well,
1: no, I don't think so. I think it's it's to do with... It's an extension on the, on the premise that um, Clara has given this guy a new outlook on life. And he's going to go
2: exploring and he's going to be a Jules Verne type person. And you know what I would have done? Well, if it was me, in hindsight, I would have gone a different way. Not had him rolling on this ridiculous steam train. I would have had Marty either read something or look up some sort of book and see Doc in a picture with items or an item that couldn't possibly be from 1885. So maybe an almanac or something weird. So then you'd go, huh? And then that'd be the audience member making up their mind as to what and how it's happened.
4: As in, Doc Doc's still traveling through time. Yes, and but I'm... he
2: hasn't alluded to how he's doing it, so we yeah. don't know. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. what but I would. That, have that done. is a good idea. A little more subtle. Yeah, I because think it's too in your face. I it mean, is. it is. It's funny. It is. It's supposed to
4: be because the whole movie, all, all three movies, are about time travel, right? And then when the DeLorean gets destroyed, it's a bit of a downer, like you said. You see the DeLorean get destroyed; it's a downer. Yeah. But then this this other. This steam train comes back, and, oh, okay, so time travel's not over yet. So, you know, it's a, it's a good happy ending to know that they still uh, can travel through time. And then they put the big, the end, so <laughs> we but know there's it? not going to be part four. But there will be an animated series.
3: There's actually um, some, I think there's some groundbreaking special effects in this film. Did, did you enjoy the special effects in this movie?
2: Yeah, special effects were were, were terrific. This one's not industrial light, is it? The um, special effects on this? I don't think so.
3: I can remember um, when I was a kid and this film was about to come out, I seem to recall that was a, 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 a thing made of the, the technology and the special effects in this movie that was used, particularly around the bit where Marty is at um, Seamus McFly's house. And there's a scene where um, Seamus is holding the baby and he passes the baby... To Marty yep. now obviously both these characters are played by the same person and the weren't, weren't, <laughs> he couldn't play two uh, characters at the same time uh, Michael J Fox so they had to do a bit of wizardry a bit of jiggery-pokery to, to make that scene work and, and it does kind of work although you can see now exactly how they did it but at the time uh, back in the uh, late 80s I'm not sure we'd seen that kind of thing before, and I can definitely remember in the newspapers and what have you, um, here in the UK, that there was, there was definitely a bit of a thing made of that, about this is, this is like next-level uh, special effects coming our way. This is next-level technology. Um, and, and it is pretty good. There are some good effects in this film. And while I'm talking about uh, special effects, the scene at the end, when, towards the end, when Marty goes back to 1985 and the train... Uh, runs into the Delorean and just uh, totally obliterates it. Uh, there was a bit of research went into that, and uh, Robert and Meckis watched a lot of uh, footage of trains um, banging into cars. And the more he watched, the more he realised that a car, a train, sorry, running into a car just looks a bit crap. It just either sort of pushes it out the way or just runs over the top of it and it looks a bit rubbish. And they didn't want that for the movie. They wanted to make sure that us watching the film knew that this car, the DeLorean, could not be used again. They wanted to totally obliterate it. So what they did was they cut the car up into bits and laced it with um, explosives so that when the the train hit the car, at the right point they detonated it and the car broke up into a million little pieces, and it and it and it looks good on film, doesn't it? When the train smashes into the car, and you're like, "Oh my God, that's it." The Delorean's nagged. Yeah, <laughs> it's never gonna get used again. Oh no, definitely not gonna be a fourth film. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I always found it interesting that the train didn't stop. Like, if a train hits a car, does it just keep going? <laughs> oh well, <laughs> he's, he's, the train just kept explode. going. It didn't it didn't stop. Oh, yeah, there's a car in the way. Oh well, bad luck. <laughs> Shouldn't be on the tracks. <laughs> Got a deadline to meet.
1: Some of the other some of the other special effects on this movie is the the miniature train that they created to throw it off the ravine, because obviously they couldn't throw a full size steam train off a ravine. Was that
2: not a real train? No, it no. was
1: it was uh I think they said a one sixth size model or something like that. So, oh, so it was fairly big. It was fairly big. It's probably about the size of the ones that you know you send little kids on. Yeah. Those oh, yeah, miniature yeah. railway things—it was about that size. The, the one thing you just the, straddle on the back. The,
4: the thing that sells it is is the steam, like stuff like like steam and and water is very hard to miniaturize. Yeah, but and when when those things are miniaturized too small, then water and things like steam and smoke—it it doesn't look real. That's it doesn't right. Form the straight, so right way, but in this it does, and that's why it looks like a real train going off. A well, regime. had me done because I thought well, it was I real. know well, yeah. I know, and I, the only I, I thing that I didn't think that, is that I didn't think
1: that they'd drive a train like that off a off a ravine.
2: Well, I was probably the the
1: special effects were so convincing to me. I assume they had. Yeah, I and, thought, oh, there must be like a
4: ravine
2: somewhere with this 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 train sitting at the bottom of it now still. Yeah. Well, The other thing <laughs> as well, because you you know this is made in a time where CG just wasn't in existence. So anything you see mm. is real to an to a degree. Yeah, it's practical to some sort of degree. Yeah. But I, you can't. I don't even think you can detect the miniaturization of
1: it. Like, not a clue. There, there are scenes in The Empire Strikes Back when they're blowing the AT-ATs up and debris is falling on the snow snowfield, where you can tell this is miniature. Mm. And even in movies like Titanic, where they're sinking the Titanic in a tank, and you can, you know, water droplets just don't have the right yeah. you know, scale to it. Yeah. But this one had me completely fooled. Yep. And just watching a making of thing on the blu ray the other day um you know i was pretty impressed that you know that's that they fooled me like that and, and they they slow it down a bit too don't they yeah the the, the, the film I, think, slowed I th- down. I
4: think to make to give it to give the train a bit of
1: weight they sort of slow down the the footage and they pretty much had one shot at it too like mm. um i think they had to do a couple of things to make sure that it you know exploded at the bottom and and that it just uh, you know it was correctly weighted and all that kind of thing but, uh, you know, good on them. And this is pre-1990. Um, practical effects, you know, they, they just hold up for the most part. They
2: do. better. Oh, than, you, they're better than anything if you can get it right. You know, better than the... I think um, any movie where you don't feel that a special effect is being put on you is a, is a good special effect in yeah, my book. Yeah. And, you know, we, we sort of talked about the train scene. And I honestly, till now, had no idea that they did what they did in that scene.
3: You know, there's some real nice touches in this movie to make it as authentic as possible, to make it as real as possible. There's a real um, devotion and commitment to to making this the best movie it can be. Uh, For example, when Marty arrives, first arrives in the Western version of Hill Valley, He goes into the saloon, doesn't he?
4: Yeah.
3: And in there, he pisses off um, Mad Dog. Um, But in the saloon, there's a bunch of old-timers sitting. Now, these old-timers are Dub Taylor, who was a Western movie veteran, Harry Carey uh, Jr., who is also a Western movie veteran. Actually, he was in The Searchers with John Wayne, one of my favourite films. Um, uh, Pat Butram is there as well again another western movie um veteran but he also provided some voice work for uh who framed roger rabbit so there you go also the bartender is matt clark who was another veteran (laughs) of western movies so it gives it a real um cred doesn't it for the western vibe
4: yep classic i I like when they're at at that festival the 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 clock tower festival (laughs) That's another good bit is that you get to see the clock tower being built, which is good.
1: And they say it too. They say you know it's it's fitting that they're here for this moment. Yeah, yeah. Because they saw the birth and the death of the clock tower. Yeah, they were there for both. You know, when it was switched on and when it sees when the lightning hit and it ceased to operate. Yeah.
3: We have uh, another musical cameo. So of course, Huey Lewis was in the first movie. In this one, we get ZZ Top. So ZZ Top were asked to do the uh, theme song for Back to the Future Part 3. Rob, uh, Robert Zemeckis is a, a huge fan of ZZ Top. And um, the band were actually out on tour and they had two days free. So they were asked to come and visit the set and have a quick um, meeting with Robert Zemeckis and for them to get a kind of feel of what the movie was about so that they could start penning the tune. And actually what happened was, is while they were talking to Robert Zemeckis, he asked them if the beards were real. So of course, these Top, two of the guys have got famously very long beards. Yeah. Yeah. And he asked them if they were real and they said, of course they're real. So what he said was... Um, right okay that let, let's get them in the movie and he wanted to expand expand the um, town band that we see in the film and he says we'll save some money on makeup and they found them a couple of old um acoustic guitars and they put them in the band so they're in the movie so they were only meant to be there <laughs> they had they had two days break in the tour they were only meant to be there for you know an hour a couple of hours uh, to speak to and Zemeckis, but they ended up staying there for um, two days and two nights <laughs> shooting uh, that scene.
4: You also see, again, another callback to Back to the Future and then Marty playing the old version of Wild Gunman.
1: He says, where'd you learn to shoot like that? And he said, 7 I think the sort of the historical themes in this movie, and by that I mean going back to the, the line doc Says to Marty twice in this movie, "You're not thinking fourth dimensionally." I love that concept. I, you know, I, I think I've said it in a previous podcast. It just sort of always uh, fascinates me the the thinking fourth dimensionally thing. So, the fourth dimension being time. The fourth dimension being time, and and just the um, example of that is the rare is the the fire tracks of the Delorean as it spins off back into the future. How it goes off the end of the bridge. And, yeah, and, you know, you, and you're forced to think about, as Marty is, you know, when Doc explains it, um, you know, I'm going to go off the end of the ravine. No, you're not. You're not thinking fourth dimensionally. 1985, when, you know, where you will end up, these tracks will be completed and you'll just, you know, sail on as if nothing's happened. And hey, Marty asks him, what will happen to the train? <laughs> it's another one of my favorite lines.
4: Oh. Oh, it'll be a spectacular wreck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, great, That's great, another great
1: dog line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> another great line is is the the train driver when when he gets hijacked. Is
2: is this a uh, is this a holdup? Right? He sort of looks at um, Marty and yeah. makes up his mind at that point. No, it's a science experiment. That's right. Is it the same yeah. driver who they who
1: they're asking all the questions to earlier, or is it a different driver? Uh I, I Ooh, thought about yeah. that, but I would assume it'd be a different driver. Yeah, you know these okay. guys are doing vast distances over a few days. It's yeah, not like they're it. running the metro route. But uh, and it was Clara's train too, wasn't it? That um, they had to hijack. I think so. Yeah, I think it, it was. I don't know if they, well, they really made it clear because
4: they say they say when does the next train come into town? Yeah, so it has to be. It's like there's one train a week that That's comes right. in. So yeah, she was on that train. Uh, I think in previous podcasts we were talking about movies with with cameos or that make references to other movies yeah and one thing i forgot at the time was that back to the future three gets referenced in a million ways to die in the west the seth MacFarlane movie right do you remember that no it's a very small reference i think it was the only reason i went to see it because i knew that this this reference was in it is that he opens when he's looking for i think he's looking for charlie's there character and uh, he opens up the barn and, and there's Doc in there with the Delor- DeLorean.
2: Yeah, <laughs> actual Doc. <laughs> yeah. yeah, actual, yeah.
4: Yeah, yeah. actual Doc in there with,
1: with the DeLorean. Because obviously Seth MacFarlane's a huge Back to the Future fan. Doc wanted to go back to 1885 to basically see out his retirement there. That, that would be a pretty cool thing to do, wouldn't it? Like when you've done everything you wanted to do in life and you've got this fantasy world that you've read about and you have the opportunity to go and make a
2: life there. Ah, oh, for a lot of reasons. Plus, life will slow down tremendously. Yeah, I mean, if there's only one train coming in and out of the town a week, it's pretty slow. And get to live um, his western fantasy. And however, be it the threat of getting shot in the back over a
1: matter of eighty dollars. <laughs> yeah, eighty dollars. Yeah. I'd like how how Tannen came up with these eighty dollars as well. It's seventy-five plus five for him not doing the horseshoe properly, which he never paid him for in the first place. Yeah, and then he shoots the horse yeah well that's your problem
4: (laughs) one thing that's consistent with all three movies is that the the cast is is basically the same and they in some cases just interchange who they play
3: yeah um we have the return of the original cast uh, for this movie no crispin glover of course he's still in the bad books um but um and they all return with various levels of um, involvement. So we have Leah Thompson in this movie uh, with a sort of much reduced role, if you like. She's not in it as much as um, the first part and the second part. And actually, uh, Leah Thompson's role in this was a bit weird because the first time in the trilogy she was playing a character who was not actually a blood relative of uh, Marty McFly. So it was weird then that Seamus McFly's wife would look like Leah Thompson. And the sort of explanation that Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale came up with was that they just sort of said that, well, the McFly men um, are just attracted to women who look like Leah Thompson, (laughs) which is a bit uh, mad, Um. Um, the, the actual real explanation is that she's there basically just because. Yep. She was in the first one, she's in the second one, she has to be there. So it, it doesn't really bother us all that much, but it is just a bit weird that she's, that Seamus's wife looks like Marty's mother when they're not blood related. I mean, I don't know what you, I don't how did how did you guys feel about that?
1: Yeah, I Adam, mean, you're right. Uh, uh, Maggie McFly or. Leah Thompson's character, I guess, she, well, she probably is a blood relative of Marty. It's just that she's on the other side of the family. No, Leah Thompson should have played a an, an ancestor of um, Marty's mum, Lorraine Baines. Mm. Not of the McFly, but, uh, in a lineage. Um, Tim off Facebook says, I could not stand the ending. What was with the kid pointing to his crotch at the end? Love the first two, struggled with the third. I think that's just the point of his crotch. Yeah, the, the little kid points at
4: his crotch in the um
1: they bring that up you now all the time.
4: Yeah, but I think it's just, I it's, didn't just notice. it's just something the kid did and they didn't reshoot it or anything like that. You I never even noticed. Oh, well, well now you will. You'll can't unsee it once you do see it.
1: So yeah, that's pretty much it. We'll probably wrap it up there. The um geeky retro nerd show audience is uh settled in for the long haul here. They know what uh, Pearls of Phantoms all about now. So, um yeah, when it comes to feedback uh, for Pearls of Fandom, we have a website, of pearlsoffandom.com. You can hit us up at feedback at pearlsoffandom.com via our Facebook or Twitter. And you can get in touch with uh, Adam on Twitter via his uh, handle, Geeky Retro Nerd Show. Uh, yeah, look, thanks in particular to uh, Adam and Geeky Retro Nerd Show audience for uh, hosting Pearls of Fandom for this episode. And uh, if you like what we're about you can uh, subscribe to us on iTunes or Podbean or however you're listening to this at the moment and uh, for our Pearls of Fandom uh, regular listeners uh, check out Adam's show it's a great show uh, geeky retro nerd show and um, yeah we have very common interests and very common topics so we'll be keen to uh, work together in uh, the future again Adam
3: yeah thanks for asking us on I've had a great time absolute ball Um, happy to do this again thank you very much cheers
1: thank you
4: alright that was our look at Back to the Future 3 completing the Back to the Future trilogy now Uh, thanks again to Adam my name's Greg thanks for joining me today Dave thank you and Daniel thanks guys see you next time folks
0: Just in time for the holidays, Select Craftsman tools are now available at Napa. Celebrate with a Craftsman 20-volt cordless impact wrench kit for just $149.99. It's the perfect gift for everyone in your list, even you. So get great savings on Select Craftsman tools, now available at your local Napa store. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa auto parts stores, while supplies last. Offer ends 12-31-19. Napa know how! Right now, a five quart jug of Napa full synthetic motor oil in a platinum filter is just twenty three ninety eight. That's a great deal for a great oil, which is another reason why this is the most wonderful time of the year. That's Napa full synthetic oil and a platinum filter for twenty three ninety eight. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. General States pricing. Sales prices do not include applicable state-local taxes or recycling fees. While supplies last. Offer ends 12-15-19.